0: Afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KLX. I'm Franklin and this is Berkeley Grox.
1: That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee.
0: Coming up on today's show, Fake Sex, Parkinson's Habits, and Silicon Rings.
1: In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. George Larson, who will talk about the developments at NASA.
0: Also, we'll find out what Archie are.
1: So stay tuned for all of this plus the world-famous question of the week coming right up here on Berkeley Grox.
0: Back to Brick Rocks. I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank?
0: Awesome, Charles. We got more science.
1: It's, of course, it's science. <laughs> I feel like it's Christmas, and I've just opened up a present, and inside is science.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's in this week's present, right? What's that? Aromatic silicon rings.
1: You know, that's, that's why I've been good all year. It's <laughs> for the aromatic silicon rings.
0: <laughs> so we know that in many carbon based compounds, there are aromatic rings where you supposedly have these pi bonding systems that can circulate their uh, electrons continuously, right? and they can form unique planar structures are actually critical to a lot of biological components
1: so it basically extends the orbital across numerous atoms
0: right so for many years scientists had thought that you could actually have these same properties with say silicon germanium tin all analog of the uh, group 14 compounds so basically down that particular column on the periodic mm-hmm. table for the first time they've been able to synthesize a compound in which three silicon atoms were conjugated aromaticized, sharing two electrons among the three of them
1: oh wow so this going to have similar chemistries to like carbon-based?
0: Probably not offhand. hand. I mean, first of all, the silicon is much larger than the carbon. So mm-hmm. the bottom lengths are almost twice as large as carbon ones. So it's for these silicon ones, about 2.2 angstroms. Mm-hmm. Carbons are typically, I think, around 1.4, 1.5. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit larger. And also, it, it takes quite a bit of constituents to uh, stabilize these molecules. So for this thing to form, you actually need to put these really bulky uh, three tributyl groups onto each of the silicon to um, flatten out the plane. Oh,
1: OK, so that basically the orbitals are in alignment.
0: Right. Hmm. And so once this is formed, you form a cation. You can only have two pi electrons to make this aromatic. Otherwise, it'll go into the anti-orbitals. So you lose an electron, and then it becomes an aromatic ring.
1: OK, well, people are interested in this for some reason. Why is that?
0: Well, to show that you know, silicon-based, tin-based life is <laughs> possible on some other
1: planet. Right. Well, I imagine it is probably useful in materials process.
0: Probably, but uh, it's a very interesting demonstration and you can check it out in a recent issue of the Journal of the American Chemical Society.
1: Jax. Well, I guess I'm moving uh, away from molecular holes to mounting behavior.
0: Mounting behavior? Like, you know, putting pictures and mounting
1: them onto the wall? <laughs> That's one kind of mounting. I don't think uh, it's the kind that involves insemination, though.
0: Oh, that
1: kind. Yes. When you do it, do you like to do it all the way? Of course. Uh, who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> but apparently many animals don't. <laughs> you mean they shoot blanks? Or they're not shooting at all. Ah, So uh, it looks like males will basically mount the females, Uh simulating sex, Uh but then not copulate. And apparently this leads to the uh, females not engaging in sexual behavior with other males.
0: This must be an evolutionary advantage for uh, such behavior, right?
1: (laughs) Well, it's really an evolutionary advantage to the male, it turns out, because right. it gets to have a, a very loyal female right. without having to invest any of its uh, genetic material in the process. Uh-huh. Uh, it's very fascinating stuff. And basically, <laughs> the group led by Han Loville, who was a graduate student at the University of Stockholm in Sweden, he basically created a harness for 11 feral hens uh-huh. that allowed the roosters to mount them, but did not allow them to be inseminated.
0: Wow. I'm not, really, I- I'm not sure <laughs> if you can do that on humans.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Isn't that like what a chastity belt is?
0: <laughs> it's just like cruel and unusual punishment.
1: For who? The roosters or the humans? (laughs) How would you even go about designing that? You can't get it off the shelf, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) Could be some new Halloween toy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think you're afraid of the uh, razor blades and the candy. (laughs) That afraid of. Keep it in mind, I guess the next time you're engaged in foreplay, it doesn't happen.
0: (laughs) It's okay.
1: Uh, Anyway, so very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Current Biology.
0: So, speaking of mounting, do you ever have the problem of not being able to unmount?
1: Getting stuck. <laughs> <laughs> there was actually, uh, I recall back when I was taking genetics, that there was a Drosophila mutant, uh-huh. which would basically be able to mount, but of course be unable to unmount. And so they named the gene which was responsible for this stuck. <laughs> Which I thought was very clever. But you know, I guess if you're working with Drosophila all day, you get a little stir-crazy.
0: Wow. So it turns out a certain amount of people uh, taking drugs for Parkinson's develop hypersexuality where they become very sexually aggressive and engage in activities that most people probably would not have done under normal circumstances.
1: You know, I get the same feeling after I drink a Big Gulp.
0: (laughs) <laughs> that withdrawal syndrome or something. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I guess Parkinson's disease where you're not getting enough dopamine into your mm-hmm. system as a result. Uh, some people have motion problems with their hands and their body where I guess they have tremors. and So a lot of them take agonist drugs which sort of help to compensate for the dopamine. But it turns out for maybe 1% or 2% of people they develop some sort of a compulsive behavior whether it's gambling, sex, eating, or something All else. All of the above. <laughs> yeah, probably. And I, actually in most common cases gambling and they've seen a few of these people who hardly gamble in their life suddenly become these obsessive gamblers as they were taking these drugs in one case a person started to have an addiction to pornography and even had an affair
1: well you can always say the drugs made me do it
0: yeah so anyways this is a bit of a concern and something that should be known just because there is a certain percentage of people who will develop these symptoms when they take these drugs but the good thing is if you stop taking the drugs m- most of these behaviors just go away completely
1: oh excellent but, of course, you need the drugs to uh, right. cure your disease, so. Either
0: shaky hands or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh...
1: You know, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of sex every now and then. <laughs> Me, i prefer any. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> this is a very interesting study that was carried out by the Mayo Clinic, and there's a very nice article in the National Geographic News.
1: All right, well, I think we've had far too many stories about sex so far, so (laughs) I'll go into vibrations of a different sort.
0: (laughs) Do you think we could get uh, into the adult category for some of these?
1: (laughs) You know, there's certainly enough fetishes out there, I guess. More of the uh, science kind, I guess. (laughs) Well, you know, sex is science. (laughs) There would be no sex without science. Uh, So it turns out, though, that researchers are now investigating how optical waves can help vibrate uh, materials. What,
0: photons into phonons?
1: (laughs) light can exert a pressure what researchers at the California Institute of Technology Carrie Vahala and colleagues have done is they've created what's called an optical microcavity mm-hmm. and it's basically akin to like blowing air across an open bottle okay as you blow the air across the bottle it starts to vibrate and resonate right so in the same way if you pump light across this optical cavity it'll start to vibrate and resonate wow yeah so it's actually a very fascinating development and apparently they say it can be used to develop a micrometer type devices.
0: Huh. So you have like these actuators to create micro devices that resonate with a certain frequency, right? Right.
1: And so you basically have light as the stimulating force. (laughs) Wow. Uh, So it's actually fascinating because actually researchers have been uh, using uh, uh, microwave type devices with this sort of system. But to use light, of course, extends the wavelengths which are possible for use.
0: Huh. So do they foresee any interesting electronic applications with this?
1: Yeah. In fact, that's the goal. Eventually, of course, is you can convert uh, light energy into uh, mechanical energy. Of course, it will both mechanical and electrical processes. uh, anyone wants to know more they can take a look it was published in a recent edition of well-known journal optical express and that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology you're listening to berkeley grox here on 90.7 fm kalx well coming up next mr george larson editor of air and space magazine will join us to discuss current developments at nasa so stay tuned Back to Berkeley Grox here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, since the 2003 Columbia tragedy, operations at NASA have been understandably cautious. The recent setback of the Discovery launch, though justified, may however hint at a growing fear in the organization that may be causing NASA to stray from their objectives and jeopardize projects like the Hubble Telescope. Well, joins us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss the operations at NASA is Mr. George Larson. Mr. Larson is the editor for Air and Space Magazine, and we're very happy to welcome you today to Berkeley Grox. Thank you. Uh, we well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and it's certainly a very, I think, interesting issue for a lot of people. Um, people like Bert Rutan, for instance, for Spaceship One, has criticized NASA for maybe their lack of explorative drive. Is NASA backing off space exploration right now?
2: Well, actually, they're going a whole lot farther, and that's, of course, the vision, as they refer to it inside NASA now, as laid out by the president to go to the moon and Mars. Prior to that announcement and prior to that initiative, we've been pretty much trapped in low-Earth orbit going back and forth to the space station.
1: I see. And so how's the NASA missions been affected by the recent Columbia tragedy?
2: Well, the shuttle operations were shut down, and that has inhibited the continuing construction of the space station.
1: I see. What are the main goals right now of NASA?
2: Well, Actually, it's interesting because at the same time that they're talking about going to the Moon and Mars, which are very actually fairly close goals. I mean, they, they will still require months of voyage to get to Mars in, in in the one case. But at the same time, they're doing they're preparing for an unmanned exploration of Pluto, which is the farthest planet. Hmm. So it's they've kind of got both ends bracketed at the
1: moment. <laughs> Are, are these missions, when Bush announced it, seem kind of pie in the sky, are these really viable missions? Well,
2: actually, we'll be returning to capsules. That's the irony in it. The shuttle, of course, is great for going on routine flights up to orbit and uh, low-Earth orbit, I mean, and, and back down again on a fairly routine basis. And it's nice to be able to reuse it, and it's nice to be able to land it. But for these more distant missions, the theory is that we'll be returning to a more capsule-like Craft. Hmm. So that's the irony.
1: I see. Is it going to be very similar to the old Apollo type capsule?
2: Oh, sure, but much more modern. I mean, mm-hmm. the the computers and and all of that have have gotten vastly better, and so all the instrumentation inside will be much more like the modern video game than it will like an old um, aircraft cockpit.
1: I see. What is NASA's current funding situation looking like in terms of supporting all of these missions?
2: Well, that's again, you know, it's it's funny, but when I came to Washington in 1985, NASA's annual budget was about 15 billion dollars mm-hmm. a year, and this year. It's up a whopping, guess what, $16 billion, And <laughs> besides that, you know, and that extra billion, they're supposed to go to the moon and Mars. So they really don't have enough to work with.
1: Right, right. I talked in the past about, for instance, Hubble being decommissioned because of lack of funds to keep it going.
2: So. I'm confused about that because, on the other hand, they have a, a replacement telescope. It's not in the visual spectrum, but I think that the, the uh, feeling was that there would be a next-generation replacement for the Hubble all along. Uh, it's amazing how many Hubble lovers have come out in the, in the last year or so since the announcement that it would be retired. I, I think when we think of this thing as producing all these beautiful images there's a certain reluctance to see it go.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly you would think that the cost of just maintaining it would be a lot cheaper than sending up a new one.
2: Honestly, don't know. I I think a new one could be engineered so it's less costly to maintain. But certainly there is a a major cost associated with keeping the Hubble uh, serviced and both the mission cost itself to get people up there to do the repair and the cost of the repair components themselves. So, yeah, it's expensive.
1: Right, right. Uh, I'm curious, how is the administration working under the new administrator, Michael Griffin?
2: Oh, I think that Mike Griffin has made it very clear that he's his own man. I'm I'm sure that most folks are familiar with the fact that he's really going to kind of clean house. I mean, he's, he's bringing in folks who are the same cut of cloth as Mike is. He's a scientist and an engineer, and he's going to be bringing in people of that ilk.
1: So where do you see the direction of NASA heading for the future?
2: Well, I think the big drive is going to be exploration and the losers there are going to be is going to be aeronautics. What everybody forgets is it's the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Mm-hmm. Well, Say goodbye to aeronautics because it's it's vanishing, it's not being funded, it's not in the it's not in the budget in anything like its its former heft and there's just not that emphasis on it anymore. I think that most people seem to believe, at least in Congress, that the aerospace companies can handle the R and D that NASA used to do. Uh, so the aeronautics is gone and and I think also some of the earth science. I, I gotta believe that uh, it's the administration's view that that's become commercialized by the number of privately owned um, satellites that are studying the Earth and measuring its changes.
1: Do you think there'll be more uh, increasing collaboration with other countries?
2: That- I sure hope so because yeah. I think it's I think that's kind of inevitable. The w- the one, by the way, that pops up the strongest on the radar is the Chinese. The Chinese have announced at least a very ambitious space program, and they're moving fairly slowly at it, but it has everybody's attention. It's our understanding that there is some discussion afoot about sitting down with the Chinese to discover how many ways there are that we might cooperate the two, between the United States and the Chinese space programs. At the moment, we're cooperating with everybody on the space station. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work very closely with the Russians, and that's a fairly good working relationship, despite what you may hear. I think we'd just be starting from scratch with the Chinese, however. Mm.
1: What do you think will be the role of private enterprise as well for uh, the exploration of space?
2: I think for tourism and for some of those, some of those very early uh, applications of private vehicles. If they can get past the obstacles of government regulation, that is, to get the FAA to approve of this activity, that'll probably be, gosh, it'll be a, a kind of elite enterprise for people who are very wealthy, but who have a sense of adventure and want to try that sort of thing. As far as uh, private enterprise in terms of Moon and Mars, I, I just honestly think that the, those contracts and those vehicles are going to be built by the existing large companies, and that would be Boeing. And and Lockheed Martin, and Northrop Grumman, we coalesce now into just a handful of these major companies.
1: Hmm. Do you think NASA also will start moving into more robotic missions rather than completely manned missions?
2: Actually, the exploration of the moon and Mars is envisioned as combined robotic and human enterprise. Hmm. And robots, you know, are doing a great job. Mm -hmm. I mean, these little guys on Mars, wow. (laughs) I mean, I'm very impressed. And I think everybody is. And after a while, you know, they acquire a certain quality of cuteness where people actually begin to feel some affection for them. I know I do. And, uh,
1: they have personalities. <laughs> yeah, they do.
2: And, you know, they're stubborn. They're, you know, the little engine that could. I think I can. I think I can. And this little guy crawls out of his, his sand dune where he was trapped. And, I, you know, it's a great story, and it's, it's lots of fun. So robots are an enjoyable way to see space. If uh, down the road you can envision it, I think well, probably what we're going to we're going to have is enormous amounts of data linked back to the Earth, and we'll be able to experience exploration through a virtual interface, uh, through a computer interface. But possibly wearing a face mask is something that gives us the view, and possibly even some of the um, the touch and feel mm-hmm. of uh, textures and things like that. That that's what NASA sees in the in the not too distant future. Certainly,
1: be a remarkable vision to have accomplished. But it does look like we're slightly out of time right now. But Mr. Larson, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today and telling us all about the fascinating happenings at NASA. It's
2: been my pleasure. Okay.
1: And you were just listening to Mr. George Larson, editor of Air and Space Magazine, discussing recent developments at NASA. You're listening to Berkeley Grox here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, you can find out how do starfish eat. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered how starfish eat? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science.
3: Did you ever wonder how a starfish eats? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Today, let's become a starfish. We live in the ocean, and we hang out around coral reefs. Our five arms are our most outstanding feature. After all, they're what gives us our star shape. All those arms connect to a central disk. Underneath, in the middle of that disk, is our mouth. Well, it's almost lunchtime, and it sounds like we're hungry. And just in time, because there, just ahead, is an oyster bed. And shellfish, like oysters, are our idea of the perfect lunch. We crawl over to an oyster and wrap our arms around it. Now, the bottom of our arms are lined with suction cups. We attach those suction cups to either side of the oyster shell and start to pull until the shell halves separate just a little bit. We maneuver it under our mouth. Then, instead of bringing this oyster into our stomach, we bring our stomach out to it. We push our stomach out of our mouth and squeeze it into the oyster's shell. Our stomach surrounds the tasty uncovered morsel and slowly digests it. Once lunch is over, our stomach returns to its proper place inside our body. And we continue along our merry five-armed way. Hope you enjoyed today's sea adventure. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense.
1: Ooh, Everyday Science lady. You're the starfish of my life. Come dine with me.
3: And now here's Toko Kid
0: with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is RK? RK is a type of microbe distinct from the line of eukaryotes and the prokaryotes. And many are typically extremophiles where they live in very, very hot conditions or very high pressure conditions or very, very cold conditions. And those are what
1: RK are. You're okay now. It's the godfather. With this week's question of the week. You come to my house. You insult me. You bring me this dopamine. Why do you bring me this dopamine? What's it doing to you? If you know the answer or you email us at groxithotmail.com, you're not going to win anything. But hey, Kapish, We just might get along a little better.
0: And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Lang.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.